Stories are what we live by, what we tell ourselves, what we believe is true. What if I told you that you are loved, desired, and you are made with a purpose? You are accepted. You have a precious soul and you have a meaningful body. You are empowered by God himself to live the rich and abundant life he always wanted for you. You are called into a mission to tell the story of God's love to all the world, and you are destined to be with Him forever. This is the true story of what it means to be a person made in the image of God and living by faith in the Son of God. This is what you are longing for. This is who you really are. We are made for connection. We are more. There's something deep within us that is more than just our biological selves. And our soul is crying out for attention and help. We long for connection with the rest parts of me. Yes. With other people. Yes. With all of creation. Yes. And something more. Your soul cries out for connection with God. It was Augustine who said, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Or in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 42 and verse one, like a deer thirsts for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for God. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Somebody asked me why I decided to grow a beer, and the answer is because I moved back to Arkansas and it's required. So just so you know, just look around. Um, we are the most advanced civilization in the history of the world. And that means, if you think about it, the chief mode of transportation 200 years ago was the horse. It was the same chief mode of transportation 2,000 years ago. And we've gone from the horse to the rocket ship in two centuries. There is more technology in your phone than there was on the Apollo mission that went and took Neil Armstrong to the moon. You can look up something in five seconds that it used to take Years to find, or you'd have to spend money and travel all over the world to find someone who could give you that information. We have more available. We are faster, stronger, better, quicker than ever before. How are we doing? Studies show that we are sick. We are lonely. We are emotionally drained. There is what Carl Jung called a hole in our soul. I want you to think about this with me. I don't really know what to think of this. In 1993, psychologist James Hillman wrote a book, and he titled it, We've Had 100 Years of Psychotherapy, and the World is Getting Worse. I certainly know that our longing has gotten worse. 
statistically speaking. In 2021, nearly 42 million adults in the U.S. received treatment or counseling for mental health. That's a lot more than 20 years ago. Try 50% more than 20 years ago. One in five Americans will experience some form of mental illness at some point this year. And over 50% of us will be diagnosed with a mental illness or some sort of disorder at some point in our lives. The reasons are multiple. The sources of our pain are from every direction. The problem is so bad that some thoughtful Christians have begun to write works like this one that's titled Trauma-Sensitive Theology with a subtitle that's very telling, Thinking Theologically in the Era of Trauma. There are many wonderful people that you and I know who have gone to see mental health counselors or who are taking medication. I have gone to seeing counselors. I have taken medication. These are gifts from God to be celebrated. We have some people in this church with incredible talents given by God to help people who are struggling with issues like that. And I make it a point to emphasize that we don't need theological language to know how deep in our bones something is missing. Something isn't right. And it's there deep in our bones that is the source of our problem. We experience greater and greater need because we are neglecting our soul. The psalmist nearly 200 years, uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, reflected on this fact. In Psalm 43 and verse 5, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted? Or why are you in turmoil? Within me. For this series uh, called Identity, uh, the first thing I do before I look at a number of other things is I'm working through a book written by James Bryan Smith, and it's called The Good and Beautiful You. That title might sound familiar. He wrote a book called The Good and Beautiful God that I like so much that I used it as the basis of a series back in the fall. His chapter on the soul is the best chapter in the book. And so I may refer to him a couple of times in this series. And in his opening chapter, he says, Our soul is the most essential, precious thing about us. And, paradoxically, our soul is something we are the least aware of and the least concerned about until our lives begin to fall apart. Don't you sense it? It's not just you and me. Listen to the music. Huey Lewis in the news. Heart and soul. Bob Marley saying about what satisfies my soul. The Rolling Stones spoke of soul survivor. Jesse McCartney says, you have a beautiful soul. And Jewel asks, who will save your soul? And we often look for healing in music. Perhaps we even look at soul music. 
It's fitting that we would turn to art or music and counseling for help with the soul. The word psychology literally means the study of the soul. But for lots of people, soul is a religious word. Well, that's because it is. When our cultural storyline changed from you are wanted, designed, made with a purpose to be human means something, and it changed to you are an accident, the end of a cosmic accident, a blind result at the end of a cosmic chain, we changed our identity from soul to self. Now think about it. We are told that independence means do it yourself. Mental health counselors will say, take care of yourself. And I can be all by myself. But what in the world is a self? Well, it starts with something you can point to. It starts with a body, and it's a body in isolation from everything else. In modern biology, in modern anthropology, you are a single self. You are the product of meaningless purposelessness, and so you have a meaningless, purposeless existence. You are a dot. What do we call that dot? We call it a self. You may have come from something just below you, but you did not come for something. And you can't be defined by anything other than your single atomic biological self. And as such, James Bryan Smith says, the self is primarily interested in survival. It finds value in how it looks, what it possesses, and what others say about it. The self thrives on the currencies of money, sex, and power, and resumes, branding, accomplishments, notoriety, physical appearance, and entertainment. The self is built on self-reliance, and therefore, it's an idol. Everything revolves around the self. The problem is, the self is too small to bear the weight of who we really are. Only the soul can do that. Way back in 1989, a renowned philosopher named Charles Taylor tried to write the definitive study of what we mean by identity these days. And he called the book Sources of the Self. And in that book, he detailed all the possible answers as to why we are who we are. And he said they're all too narrow, they're too blind. And in the end, He saw hope for personal identity, for our communal identity, what it means to be human in one place, in the story told by Jews and Christians, that we find our identity and self-worth in the favor of God who affirms our identity in him. Self is focused on what you see and touch. It treats you as an isolated unit. But what if there's more to me? than what you can see and touch? And what if that more is something that longs to be a part of something greater than myself? What do I do with that? Last week, I told you that when God looks at you, he sees his own face. That's more profound than you might imagine. In the late 1970s, there was a famous psychologist who did a series of 
experiments. And he took children, toddlers and young uh, and, and infants, and he sat them on one side and their caregivers were sitting on the other side. And he told these moms and dads, whatever you do, do not make any facial response. This only happened for a few minutes, but it was filmed. And I don't have to tell you how gut-wrenching it is to watch these films. As the children look into the eyes of their caregivers and see nothing but hollowness. And no matter what they do, there's no response. And so the children grow angry and then frustrated and then hurt and then scared and finally writhing in emotional pain. They collapse to the floor. We are made for connection. We are more. There's something deep within us that is more than just our biological selves. And our soul is crying out for attention and help. We long for connection with the rest parts of me, yes. With other people, yes. With all of creation, yes. And something more. Your soul cries out for connection with God. It was Augustine who said, God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Or in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 42 and verse 1, like a deer thirsts for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for God. Of course it does. We learned last week that you were intended, but today, let me tell you, you were intended to live forever with God. And when you feel disconnected, lost, alone, and discontented, don't forget this. You were intended to enjoy life forever, connected with truth, beauty, and goodness. And that's what your soul has been trying to say. God breathed life into you. That's the story. In Genesis 2 and verse 7, God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And in the King James, man became a living soul. It's not just the King James that says that. The American Standard Version says that. The Good News Version says that. Even Eugene Peterson's The Message says that, that you're a living soul. And that translation helps, but then it obscures, and then it helps again. How does it help? Well, it helps because it connects the fact that whatever human beings are, we're more than dust. We're more than bodies. In fact, whatever more we are is a direct result of being given something by God. Spirit gives birth to spirit, and God breathed into our nostrils, and we became something more. That's where it helps. But if you've done any study in the Old Testament, if you've known any Hebrew, if you're looking at the study notes in your Bible, you might say, wait a second, there's a problem here. Doesn't Nathan know there's a problem here? I do. That translation also obscures something. Take a look at each part of this verse. The actual Hebrew for that last line Man became a living soul in the King James is nephesh kaya. 
There's a reason why other translations simply say living creature. You know why? Because whatever that phrase means, nephesh kaya, it shows up in chapter one of Genesis when God made the sea creatures. They were nephesh kaya. And then God made the land creatures in verse 24, and they were nephesh kaya. In chapter 2, when God calls all the animals to see what Adam will call them, you know what they all are? They're all nephesh kaya. So the phrase, those last two words, are the same phrase for every other thing God made that creeps upon the earth. Well, maybe we'll find something special in the phrase breath of life. Maybe that's uniquely human. Nope, that doesn't work either. In the flood, God says, I'm sending the flood, and it's going to take away everything in which it has the breath of life. And it's referring to land creatures. Okay, maybe it's the fact that we're made of dust. That's what makes us special. Nope, that's not it either. Because in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 19 through 21, it says, just like the beasts of the field, we're made of dust. And to dust, we shall return. It's interesting that most of the stuff in this verse is meant to connect you, not separate you from everything else God made. But there is something different in Genesis 2 and verse 7. Two things, in fact. First, it says that God formed man. You ever notice that in chapter one, God doesn't touch anything? Let the earth bring forth grass. Let the earth bring forth animals. But in chapter two, God, like a skilled artist, uses his hands as he forms humans. In fact, the word here for formed is the Hebrew word for making pottery. And that's not the only unique thing. While every land creature has the breath of life, God breathes that breath into humanity. You know, in Ezekiel 37, there's a prophet, and his job is to tell Israel one day God's going to bring his people back. They're scattered all over the place. He's going to bring them back, and to illustrate it, God takes him to a valley full of dry, dead bones, and he says, I will breathe life back into you. I will put breath back into you. Other translations, I will put my spirit within you. And it's interesting, because even though the skin came back on and the muscles came back on, they were still dead until that breath, that wind, that spirit came in. And that same Hebrew word, that can mean breath or wind or spirit is this thing from God that animates and quickens and gives life. But in the New Testament, it's what gives and reminds us of eternal life. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says in chapter 3 that the Spirit's activity is like wind. And in chapters 14 through 16, he calls him the Spirit. But can anybody remember at the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus has risen from the dead, that third sense of the word is used again. 
Do you remember how God lets his apostles know that they can have God's active power, God's presence within them? He says to his apostles, receive the Holy Spirit in John 20 and verse 22, and he, quote, breathes on them. What makes humans unique in Genesis 2 and verse 7 is that God formed and God breathed. You know what that means? It means trace everything you want about the human being that connects us to the earth. Do it. It's fine. But don't forget that God's hands and God's breath make us something more. You know it in your bones that you were made for more. And I think the word that explains what that more is, what makes us different than anything else, is captured well in the King James, that we are living souls. And this leads to a very important point. I think throughout the years, we might be tempted to think of soul as the real you that's stuck down deep inside this body. And one day, maybe we can shed our minds and our emotions and our bodies, and then we'll be free to be the real me, the soul stuck deep down inside. That sounds more like the cultural story of the self than it does the biblical you. What the word nephesh in the Old Testament and the word for soul in the New Testament most often means is, in fact, the total unified you. Just as air travels through your veins, to every corner of your body. And just as your thoughts and your feelings end up affecting every square inch of your existence, think of the breath of life as the animating power that touches every single part of you. And when you are working together, operating on all cylinders, when there's a you that's the same, regardless of what age you are, or as your body gets old and dies, or your hair color, or your physical abilities. What is the total you, the thinking, feeling, caring, longing, loving you that stays the same through time? The word for that is soul. Soul is, as one New Testament author puts it, the whole human being seen from the point of view of your inner life. And that is why if you hurt your body, you hurt your soul. That's why negative thoughts can lead to a sick stomach. That's why positive thinking can cause adrenaline to give you extraordinary strength. And that's why feeling guilt or shame can affect every aspect of your life. It's why doing wrong or believing wrong or living wrong doesn't feel right. You are an integrated whole. We already did some spade work on Genesis 2 and verse 7 to try to show what's unique about humans. But you know we could have done this also with Genesis 1. Because unlike all those things God didn't touch and God just spoke into existence, in Genesis 1, 26, he stops and he says, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. In the late second century, early third century, some believers began to try to think through what that might mean. And there were a couple of them, especially, that said, I think 
that every human being on the planet has the image of God. But I think that maybe our sense of sin and guilt and shame have caused a marring of the likeness of God. And for that reason, a man named Origen said, I really think that we all have the image of God, but it won't be until the second coming that we'll restore the likeness of God. But Tertullian said, actually, no, I think we all have the image of God, but if we can access God's spirit, if God can breathe new life into us even now, maybe he can breathe that likeness of God back into us as well. Listen to this beautiful quote from from about the year 200. In baptism, death is abolished by the washing away of sins, for the removal of guilt also removes the penalty. Thus, humanity is restored to God into his likeness, for he had originally been in his image. The state of being in the image of God relates to his form. In the likeness refers to his eternity. For humanity receives back that spirit of God, which at the beginning was received from God's inbreathing, but which was afterwards lost through falling away. Words and phrases like falling away are religious words. And if you're not religious, let me use a different word. I told you that Carl Jung, the psychologist, said that we all sense a hole in our soul. Or to twist a line from Apollo 13, Houston, we have a problem. Things are not as they should be, and we know it deep down in our soul. What Christians believe is that this hole in our soul is more than just wrong decisions that we make. We use the word sin to refer to that great rift between us and what we know we ought to be and what we know we ought to connect to. It's problem with a capital P. And if you're vaguely familiar with Christians or with church, you might have heard or thought you heard that sin is your fault. You messed up. God will judge you because of your sins. Now, if you have heard that, I'd like to give you a different starting point. My daughter is very young, uh, too young for the talk. Uh, At some point, uh, her mother uh, and I, but mostly her mother, will have to give her the talk. Now, I've been counseled by wise Christian counselors. That should be a series of talks, all age appropriate throughout her life. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm a little nervous about that. Not sure exactly how to do that. But one piece of advice I received years ago, I'm going to hold and treasure. And the line was this, whatever you do, don't help them learn something that they're going to have to unlearn later. That's a good line. Now, if you have some one-liners in your mind about what sin is, I'd like to sit down with you privately and spend some time doing some work to help you unlearn and relearn. And I believe that I and you and everyone else have made bad choices. And I believe sin is real. And I believe God will judge sin. By the way, you hope that's true too. If you've ever been the victim of something wrong, you too are glad that God will judge sin. But I wish all people could start their thinking with this great line. Other people have said it. I read it in Thomas Aquinas, but other people said it too. And the line is this. 
we are judged, we are condemned, we are hurt, not so much for our sins as we are by our sins. In other words, God made us to connect to what is good and true and holy. And that which is not good, which is not true, which is not holy, hurts us. It pulls us away from what we ought to be, from what we were made to be, and we see the effects in our world. There are some deep truths about the soul that I think everyone senses to be true. This chart comes from James Bryan Smith's book. He says, the soul cannot endure harm to our bodies. We long to see our bodies as sacred, and Christians believe that in Jesus Christ, our bodies are sacred, and we even see ourselves as part of his body. The soul cannot endure feeling unwanted. We long to be wanted and desired, and in Jesus Christ, we know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit sees us as deeply wanted. The soul cannot endure feeling shame and guilt and boredom or the effects of sin. Our soul cannot endure being disconnected from God or being nothing more than a meaningless victim of circumstances. We long for something more, intimate connection with God, being loved without condition, made alive and called to an adventure, given meaning and purpose and forgiven forever. And Christians believe that all of this is available in Jesus Christ. It's why the Christian can sing, whatever my lot, it is well with my soul. It's because our identity is grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. And Christians believe that Christ is the express image and total likeness of God. He shows us what God always had in mind for humanity. Christians believe that if we want to know what it truly means to be truly human, we look into the face of Christ. We long for something better, and we find what our soul longs for in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you this morning, have you found what you're looking for? If you've been looking in any place other than in Christ, I can tell you the answer, which you know deep in your bones. You're still looking. Christ offers you the total self-worth, the total self-help, because he changes your whole view from self to soul. And soul breeds soul. Will you give your life to Jesus Christ. I don't just mean your mental ascent. I don't just mean putting your body in the water. I don't just mean loving him with your heart. I mean, give him everything you are. Give him your soul. That's what baptism is meant to imply. That we take everything that is you and we bury it. And what comes up out of the water is a new you breathed fresh by God.
Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.